got your uh, Bible or your phone or something, you'll be looking at Scriptures with us this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11. Um, as we have been working through Luke now over the last several months, um, we have seen this, this gospel that's been written um, really looking to kind of give us an orderly account to make sure that Theophilus, who Luke was writing to specifically and then to the larger church audience, could see this orderly account of Jesus, right? From the birth announcement of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, through the, the announcement of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then into his sequel, Acts. Um, over the last three weeks, um, as Jesus has um, kind of with resolve is moving towards Jerusalem, and we have a, a large teaching section here in, in Luke. Um, the last three weeks, what we've seen is really what's it look like to be a disciple? And so we've asked the question is, you know, who is our neighbor? Um, and are we being a good neighbor? Um, what's it look like to sit at the feet of Jesus, right? And to feast um, and to enjoy all that, that He is, as we saw the story of Mary and Martha. And then last week, the Lord's Prayer. And this reminder that we can come to God in prayer. He asks us to. Um, he, we get to call Him Father. We get to come to Him in that. And so we worked our way through that prayer. Um, before we jump in to where we're going to be this morning in Luke 11, um, I want you just even for a moment to think through um, if, if people, maybe these are folks at work that are under your charge or coworkers, or maybe it's um, in, your, in your house, your spouse, um, or a sibling, or your kids. If people were to listen the first time, how much would that change your life, right? If they would just hear your instructions and do it, how differently, right? Like I, I can see eyes being cut across the room already, right? Like how different it would be if you could just say it once and it was done, right? Like it would be glorious. Like we really can't even imagine it. Like we, we fight for it daily, but we really can't fathom it. And yet, we, we often what we need is, is a lot of repeat, right? That we have these aha moments where we've been the one that they were trying to get the idea across to, and we're like, oh, that's what you meant. Oh, like, right, like we've had those moments, and we want grace in them. Sometimes it's harder for us to offer grace to those who are lacking their aha moment yet. Um, and yet we see this passage in, in, in John chapter 2. Early in John, right, where, where Jesus is revealing some things and talking about His resurrection and His crucifixion in language that the disciples did not yet understand. Um, and in verse 22 it says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said these things, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. What I want to remind us as we go into this passage this morning was that the disciples walked with Jesus for three plus years, right? And it wasn't until after the fact that some of the aha moments happened, right? Where things that they had seen and experienced and had been taught and had heard finally clicked, and they were like, oh, oh. That's what he meant. That's what he meant. And so as we feel like sometimes we see some repetition or some things coming up again and again in Luke, it's because we need it. Right? It's a reminder that we don't get things always the first time. That the Lord is kind and gracious to bring things up to us um, in different ways and to, and to reveal different aspects and parts. And so where we have seen some healings and some other miracles come, every time Luke brings one of these back up, 
He's showing us a different element of it, right? He's showing us more, so, because sometimes we just can't take it all at once. In, in the same way that God doesn't reveal to you all of your sin and the depth of it in one moment because it would crush you, right? But, but He lets you see pieces of it, and then you start to think, man, I'm doing all right. And then you're reminded of your sinfulness. You're like, oh, yeah, that's been there too. It's all right that, that he's, He lets us see it in moments. And so we can recognize this morning that there is a battle going on. The good news is, is it's not a fair fight, right? The, the devil does not have um, the same um, tools to bring into the fight that God has. But there's a battle going on. Like the, even this morning, there are folks who, would, who should be with us who aren't, right? Because um, they're, they're facing the impact and the implications of the battle that, uh, with their health or with other situations in relationships. And so they're in hospitals or they're at home or they're dealing with these things. So there's this battle taking place. And yet we see the joy and the celebration as well. That there are those of you in the room who are celebrating and joyful this morning because God has seen you through some things. And you're here um, because you aren't um, in, in the throes of something right now. And all of that is going on in our family, in our church family, simultaneously at all times. So I want us to pick up um, with, with these thoughts in, in the back of our mind in Luke 11, beginning in verse 14. So this is coming off the teaching on prayer, right? That we have the right to come to Him in prayer that He wants us to, that He wants us to call Him Father. Now, He was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We're going to stop there for the moment. So we come off of this scene of, of teaching about prayer, right, that feels like, oh man, it's just, it, it's rich and it's good and it's a reminder that we, we can come to Him. And then we just immediately segue into another demonic encounter. Um, depending on the, the background that you grew up in, um, maybe even just the Western scientific mind, sometimes we can struggle with the idea of, of the demonic. Um, Luke does not look to... To, to prove anything here. He doesn't even walk through what it is that Jesus does. He just shows us that there's a man who's mute and Jesus cast out the demon. It's important for us to note that not all healings um, in the Gospels are attached to, to demons. Some are and some aren't. That we see that there are both um, the, the, the effects of the fall of sin that our bodies can be broken and affected in need of healing and it's not demonically affected and other times it is. Right? And that Jesus in this moment, he casts out a demon, 
The man begins to speak and the crowds marvel. And yet, remember, Jesus has set His face to go to Jerusalem with His resolve. Um, animosity is beginning to build amongst the religious leaders. There's a reason why He'll be crucified. My people will want Him dead. And as the crowds are going and are watching and are marveling, right, that there's some discord being sowed. Right, some discord and, and things being whispered or shouted in the audience looking to oppose Him, looking to create doubt and uncertainty. Look at verse 15. But some of them said, hey, He cast out demons by Beelzebub. Like He said, He cast out demons by the demons. And Jesus right, knows their thoughts. He just begins to tear down their arguments. Verse 17, knowing their thoughts, He said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. What he's saying is like, if you are an army or a kingdom, and he's beginning to create in our minds the imagery of battle here, of, of a war, of a conflict, he's like, what nation would fight itself and think that they're stronger and better? Right? He's like, we, we know that the enemy, the devil, wants to steal and to kill and to destroy, John tells us. That he wants fear, he wants to enslave us, he wants disease. Right, he, This is who He is. Why would the devil then give me power? Because that's the question they're asking is, by whose power is Jesus doing this? Why would He want me to reverse what He's done to enslave and to harm this person? No nation right, would fight itself to be stronger. Kingdoms that fight themselves eventually fail and, and, and go away. Right, They're laid to waste. So He tells them, if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? You say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub? He's just basically saying, it doesn't make sense. There's no logic to this that the devil would fight against himself by showing something good when what he wants is fear, disease, doubt, and struggle. He then continues in verse 19. And he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by, Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Right? That they're are others who are casting out demons. We know at least the disciples are doing it. We've seen it in chapter 9 when they were sent out and were given the authority to teach and to heal and to cast out demons. He's saying, so how are they doing it? You know these guys. What are they claiming? Are they claiming that the devil has empowered them or that God has? It's like you're setting yourself up to be judged by those that you know that are your sons, right? That are your relatives that you trust. Like this, this doesn't make sense. And then the final one is not just that it's illogical and that others do it and no one is claiming that the devil gives them power. The third, look at verse 20. So if it's not by the devil, then it must be by the finger of God. Verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In this phrase, he's actually taken us back to the Old Testament. In Exodus 8, um, in this scene, we have Moses, right, who's looking to free his people. Pharaoh, who is, is fighting back against them. And so as, as Moses and Aaron have come on the scene, um, Pharaoh's magicians have been able to match them, kind of uh, miracle for miracle for the first couple, right? But then in, in chapter 8, verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and on beast. And the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, 
and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So what we see is that, that Moses is working by the hand of God, by the power of God, that the magicians even saw it, and Pharaoh's like, yeah, I see it, and I'm, I'm going to reject it, and he hardened his heart. And, and right, continual plagues would come until eventually God's people are released. And so here, he's reminding these in the crowd who are the, the religious leaders, those who know the Scriptures, he's like, you've seen the finger of God before. And if you're not careful, your heart's going to become hardened to it, and you're going to stand in opposition to God. It's a warning. He's like, you're seeing the power of God here remove something that is evil and wicked and is harming this individual, and instead of celebrating and praising God, you're like, eh, we don't like Jesus. So how can we discredit this? Maybe the devil has given him the power to do it. And he's like, you're seeing the finger of God work. And the risk is that your heart is going to be hardened because you don't want to accept that God is at work. That the kingdom is, is here and it's near. The mystery of this, though, is the kingdom is coming in two parts. Right? That the kingdom has come already, but it's not yet here in fullness. Right? That we, this morning, are benefactors and partakers in the kingdom of God. Right? We, we have freedom, and we have hope, and we have joy, and we have peace. Right? That we know our ruler and our king who reigns on high from heaven. But there will be a day where he will split the sky. Every knee will bow. Right? Everyone will see him for who he is. And the kingdom will be here in fullness for eternity. And so it is here, and there's more of it to come. It's an already and not yet. They expected it to be a political kingdom coming right now on the scene. And it's not, and so they're struggling with it, and the religious leaders are beginning to harden their hearts towards Jesus. Luke is helping us understand right, why Jesus would be put to death. What, how the hardness of heart could lead to someone finally saying, let's kill him. And so he, he continues this with a parable. Right? Look, look in verse uh, 21. When a strong man fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Verse 21, he's referring to the devil. Powerful one. Strong one. Who's in, right, has, has some rule and some reign on earth. It's powerful and right, is able to, to send his, his demons and his minions to do his bidding. And he's strong and he's guarded his place and his goods are safe. And, and so it's, it's meant to say, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? But we're reminded that, that John tells us in 1 John 4 that greater is the one who is in us than the one who's in the world. And so we have this scene of we can't attack him. He's a strong man. He's fully armed. He's guarding his own palace. His goods are safe. And then verse 22, but when one stronger than he, it's not us. Jesus attacks him and overcomes him he takes away his armor, which he trusted, and he divides his spoil. Like what victory? This is the moment in the movies, right, where they've set it up as there's no way the bad guy can lose. And then somehow, right, the good guy comes through and wins, and like you're, you just want to cheer like, yeah! Like, yes! We didn't think it was possible, and here it's happened. And Jesus is saying, there's a strong one, but I'm stronger. And the victory is here, and it's at hand. 
And I'm not asking you to do it. I've done it. I'm doing it. And I'm going to divide the spoils. So one of the things that's happening is he overcomes the devil is that he's freeing us. Those who are, who are enslaved to him, who are demonically oppressed, that, that belong to him, they're freed. And then Jesus is passing out the spoils. He's giving to us what, what we need. Right? Listen to, this is Isaiah chapter 35. We're seeing this section of Scripture lived out. Um, we're going to begin in the, kind of the second half of verse 2. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Right? He's saying that when I come, things get fixed. They get restored. They get reversed. Right? The prisoners are set free. And so Jesus is saying, I'm overtaking the strong man. You don't have to fear him. Right? And I'm going to give you the spoils. Peace. Salvation. Forgiveness. Belonging. Eternity. Hope. Freedom. The Holy Spirit. He's like, I've come and I'm doing these things. Do you see that the kingdom is near? The finger of God is at work. Don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. That there's no neutrality here. Look at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He is telling them, listen, so you will either harden your heart to me as I'm working, as I'm, as I'm moving, and you will be against me, and you'll be working for the strong man, but not the stronger one, or you will walk with me. And you will have the spoils of war because victory is at hand. And it is certain and it is sure. And there's no neutral ground. You are on one side or the other. So you are either enslaved to the, to the, the, the prince of darkness in this world or you're mine. There's no like, oh, I'll see. This morning you belong to one of them. And only... To one of them. And so he wants to, to kind of nail this um, home. And so he continues then with, with a short story. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it will find the house swept and put in order. And it goes and it brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So he tells this parable. And the story here is this. that Someone um, receives an exorcism, right? That whatever was plaguing them has been removed. It's gone. But that does not mean they're saved. It does not mean they have faith. It does not mean they have belief. 
It's been removed. They've experienced something good. The danger and the risk, though, is what he's telling us is, is you can have a spiritual experience and a, a spiritual moment where God intervenes in your life, but if, it, if belief doesn't follow, right, you're not a vacuum, something is going to take that place. And so in this story that he tells, someone receives an exorcism, right, the demon leaves, God has ordered their home, swept it up, tidied it up, and they choose not to follow, trust, or to believe Jesus. And after some time, the demon returns, sees that the place is vacant, and, and brings help, brings friends. And the situation is worse than it was beforehand. Right? The reason often in Scripture that we see after a healing or an exorcism, these type of situations, that the response of the person is left unclear is because Scripture is asking us, how would you respond? What would you do? Would you trust the Lord in this moment or not? Or would you simply be glad for the physical relief? There's no middle ground. You will belong to one or the other. And we know that in situations right, where, where maybe healing has come or you've seen the Lord work in a tremendous way in your life, that if you don't give Him the credit, if you don't begin to follow Him with faith, that you can begin to look at that situation and go, I did that. Right? Like you can begin to downplay the significance of what the Lord did. We, we potentially see this most often with someone in the hospital. Right? They're, they're begging the Lord for, for healing, for, for, for good news. That good news comes. And then the doubt enters. Oh, maybe that would have happened anyway. Maybe I overreacted. Right? Maybe I didn't really need to ask everyone to pray. And you begin to put your faith in yourself or in the medical community. Right? You begin to put it in something other than the fact that the Lord moved. And the Lord uses the medical community to bring healing. Right? But you don't give Him credit in something. And you begin to make yourself open to, I didn't really need God. And now you're vulnerable to trusting in something other than Jesus. Yourself. Something. So this moment is happening, and you can imagine the tension, right? The crowd's there, this healing has taken place, this exorcism has taken place, people in the crowd are kind of shouting out, dissension is being talked about, right? And Jesus is just kind of coming at them saying, hey, you're hardening your hearts, there's risk here. And then a woman in verse 27, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice, and said to him, Blessed is the woman, the womb that bore you, and the breast at which you nursed. Right? She like she's just like, Jesus, we love you. Right? It's kind of like the right, you've been in a crowd situation, right? Where the band walks out and people just they, they just yell stuff like, We like you, we love you. This woman just kind of shouts out a blessing on him. And look at how Jesus responds in verse 28. But he said, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Once again, it, it, it is a, it's a blessing, but it's also a warning to those in the room, to those in the, in the crowd. What I want is for you to hear my Word and obey it. I'm not looking for fans. I'm not looking for applause. Right? I'm looking for those who will follow me. We see in, in chapter 8, verse 21, that when, when talking about his own family, he says, my family, my brothers, my sisters, my mother, are those who follow me, who, who keep my word. 
In Luke 6, um, we're reminded that he says this in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me, hears my words, and does them, I'll show you what he's like. And he gives the, the parable of the one who builds his house on solid ground, right? And so when the storms come, his house stands. But he says it's the one who comes and hears and does. And he says, some of you are simply calling me Lord, and you're not following me. We're reminded here that Jesus is telling them, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. His calling us to obedience. And we live in a section of the country where people want to speak highly of Jesus and affirm things about Him, and then their life looks nothing like Him, and they don't feel any compulsion to obedience because they know some things about Jesus and they assume it's sufficient. And the church has often told them it was. And Jesus says, it's not. It's not sufficient. Come to Me, Right? Find rescue, find hope, see your house ordered, and trust me, follow me, obey me, have faith in me. He's calling here for a response. In this moment of an exorcism, and as he is teaching, he's saying, you've got to make a decision. You've got to follow either the prince of the power of the earth, or me. We're going to read one more section in this, of Luke 11 here. Begin in verse 29. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so he is once again warning them and saying, listen, just as Pharaoh hardened his heart, you're at risk of doing the same thing. And we see twice in this section of Scripture, one in verse 16 and again in verse 29, right? that they're testing him. Verse 16, to test him, they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And then verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no more sign, right, will be given. So, in Deuteronomy, right, Israel is told when a prophet comes, you can, they, they make claims, they, they need to prove it, they need to test it, see if it happens. But in this situation, Jesus is giving signs. He just cast a demon out of someone. Right? And told, him, told them why he did it. And they're like, ah, it's not bad. What else can you do? What else can you do, Jesus? Well, you give us another sign. Give us a little more proof. Ultimately, what are we saying in that moment? Right? Because there's, you'll hear this often said. Man, if I could have just seen Jesus with my own eyes, then I would believe. If I could have just seen Him do some of these things, then I would believe. Maybe not. Because they're seeing it. And they're like, ah. 
give us a little more. Give us, give us something more. Ultimately, when we say, give us another sign, Jesus, what we're saying is, we're not satisfied with you. This isn't sufficient for us. You haven't proven anything to us, right? We want something more. We want something more spiritual, more special. And Jesus is telling them there is danger in continuing to just seek signs after signs after signs after signs, right? Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, right? Being fed by God, having water produced, being protected, being guided, being led, being served, right? And they were like, ah, it'd be better to be enslaved in Egypt than to be doing this. They were a wicked generation. They didn't see the promised land because of it. And in, in early in Luke, Zechariah, who is having an angelic encounter, right, is like, give me some more proof. You're seeing an angel. And what happens? He was, there was a punitive moment, right? He was muted until John the Baptist was born. In, in Luke chapter 4, the devil tests Jesus. Right? That we see that seeking of signs and testing of Jesus is not, the, not where we want to be. The sign of Jonah, right, in, the, in this, the story of Jonah, the Old Testament book, is that Jonah does not want the Ninevites, right? These people that he thinks are horrible. He doesn't want them to trust God. And he's afraid if he goes to them that they will, right? Like he's like, the message is good. Why wouldn't they repent? I don't want them to repent. I hate them. And so he flees and doesn't take them the message initially. Right? And he has to have this miraculous encounter where he is spit back on the beach and finally he's like, okay, God, obviously I can't run from you. And I'm going to go and I'm going to preach. And he's like, I knew you were going to rescue him. <sighs> right? Like Jonah's kind of a strange book. And he says, the sign you're going to get is this. So what's the sign of Jonah? That he came preaching repentance prior to judgment. And we, we, we can tie in the three days, right, in the fish, right, with the three days in the tomb, right? But in the moment, what he's saying was that Jonah came with a message to a people in need of repentance and said, if you don't repent, judgment will come. And they repented. And they were not Jews. They were Gentiles. And he's like, and you who have the Scriptures and have me here before you, I'm greater than Jonah, and you're rejecting me. You're hardening your heart towards me. And then he continues. He says, the queen of the south. So this is the queen of Sheba from history. Um, interesting enough, um, she actually came from the area that is Yemen. Um, and so there's a place where you can visit some of the queen of Sheba's um, kingdom's remains in Yemen. So when it says she was the queen of the south, you picture on a map the Middle East, Yemen is the south, the southernmost part of, of the peninsula there, the Queen of Sheba came, right? She hears of Solomon and she comes. So let's look real quick in 1 Kings chapter 10 to hear her story briefly. Now the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a great, um, with a great following, with camels bearing spices, much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, 
the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Like what a description, right? Of just like, she couldn't believe. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God who is delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So right in Jerusalem, you go down south to, to modern day Yemen and the Queen of Sheba hears of this man and is like, I've got to see if it's true. And she travels and finds that it's true and she rejoices and praises God because he's made Solomon king. Again, not a Jew, a Gentile. And Jesus is telling them, Jonah, who unwillingly went and preached to the Ninevites, and they repented and believed. And Sheba, the queen of Sheba, right, who heard of the wisdom of Solomon, and they, she sought it out to see if it was true and found that it was, she believed these two generations of non-Jews are going to stand and judge you you had me here and you are hardening your heart and rejecting me. Like he is telling them that the time to respond is now. Like he is the wisdom of God. They had less wisdom in Solomon, less of a message in Jonah, and yet people responded and repented. And he's saying, the finger of God is here, right? The Son of God is here. Jesus is our wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1. And yet they're not trusting or seeing it. Jesus is the obedient, better Jonah who came willingly to call us to repentance before judgment, to bring miraculous rescue. And so the question for us this morning as we finish this kind of odd, strange compilation of passage here is who do you say He is? As we answer that question, who do we say He is, is then are you following and obeying Him? Because Jesus says, it's not just a recognition of who I am, it's do you obey Me? And listen, your obedience does not save you. It does not make you His. But it is a marker that you are His, that you belong to Him. That you've been made a son or a daughter, that you trust Him. And you're walking in obedience and faithfulness to Him. He has lived the life that you were meant to live. He's died the death in your place. And He has beaten sin and death and Satan. He has taken out the strong man. He has given you the spoils of war and has simply said, follow me. Don't just nod in agreement at me. Follow me. He is our wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.30 He is greater than the one who is in the world. 1 John 4.4 4. Colossians tells us that He has put the devil and his minions to open shame at the cross. They have lost. Jesus is reversing the curse and restoring us to what the kingdom will look like with righteousness and justice and hope and joy and peace. It means that addiction can be beaten. It means the things that we have lost can be returned. It means that demons right, flee at His voice. 
means that any mental or physical struggle or strain that we have, that Jesus meets us in it, either in healing and restoration in this life or the promise of it to come. And if it doesn't come in this life, then He sustains us in the midst of it. That if you've had lost hope, He brings hope. That if you feel like you don't belong, He invites you to belong to His table. Crippled as we are, as a son or a daughter, welcomed and loved by Him, made His family. That if you are a rebel, and we have all been the rebel opposed to Him, that He makes us His if we as ourselves have believed that we could fill the vacuum and we don't need Satan and we don't need Jesus, that we are still in need of rescue and He will rescue you. And He will call you to Himself. We trust and follow and obey. He leaves us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a seal that these promises are true and there are more promises that are coming that will be fulfilled as the kingdom goes from being invisible to visible. So for this moment in history, right, as Jesus is walking through history, right, the kingdom is, is visible in part. He is showing us that as He's raising people from the dead, as He's healing people, right, as He is walking on water, as He is doing miracles, right, and being told the kingdom is near. We now are proof that the kingdom is near. Because as you think of your past and your situation and the things that you've done and the things you've trusted in and the transformation that has come in your life, you are a sign to the world that God is at work. That we are not what the world would produce. We are what Jesus is producing. Right? We are bringing hope to others that it is possible, not because we pulled ourselves up by our bootstrap, but because we have obeyed Jesus and we are His. But there will be a day where the invisible ruling King right now will split the sky. And he will step into human history again. And He will rule for all eternity. Not as the humble King who came, but as the conquering King. And everything will be made right, and everything will be restored once and for all, forever. And so in this moment, we live with a taste of the invisible kingdom and in the presence of sin. And we are being asked, who is our master? Who is our master? The strong man or the stronger one? His victory is His. It belongs to Jesus. Don't merely marvel at Him. Don't merely know things about Him and don't merely offer lip service. But like verse 28, when Jesus says, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Would we be obedient, willing, grateful followers of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Your Word that doesn't leave us um, wondering where You stand. Your Word that reveals clearly who You are. Your expectation for us. Father, thank You that it's not by our good efforts or our religious ability that we are saved, nor that we keep ourselves saved. It is by Your strong and mighty hand. And so, Father, for those in the room right now who desperately need hope that You're stronger, would You show that You are? Lord, that it's You who keep us. It's You who rescue us. It's You who save us. And it's You who transform us. But would we be glad-hearted, willing recipients of it, trusting, following, and running after You, obeying You, 
in being the men and women who build our house upon the rock that is our wisdom, that is you, Jesus. So this morning, where there is sin, would you shine a light on it, that we would confess it and repent of it, and in that find grace and forgiveness and repentance. God, where there are areas that we believe that we can stand between the devil and you, God, would you shine a light on that, that we would realize there is no neutrality. Father, would we let go of the things that make us rebels? Father, for those this morning who are in the clutches of the evil one, that they would see that the stronger one has come and that salvation is here, and they would respond and trust you, that you are their hope and their rescue and their salvation and their life. Would you move among us? Would we be a people who would follow and obey and praise you in these moments? In Jesus' name, amen.